Hey guys, here we are, the Quigan Out MMA Podcast, episode 42, and I'm joined by somebody who I've been talking to for many, 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 many years and never got the pleasure of having on the show, MMA journalist and Nerdcore Movie Editor-in-Chief, Damon Mar- How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Like we were talking about before, you know, just dealing with a little hurricane outside, but uh, I didn't want to reschedule or take the time, so if a tree comes crashing through my house, you'll know why I have to stop. <laughs> I, if you're thinking about a great way to end the show, not that I want a tree to come crashing through, but I mean that would be a, that'd be a heck of a finale right there. I don't think I'd ever do another show again. I'd be like, how do I top that? Like how, <laughs> like, how on earth could I possibly top that? Be like, oh, you had this guy on the show. Yeah, he had a tree come through his house. In the yeah, that might be the last the podcast I ever do. I don't think I could ever top that for being a guest on a podcast. I'm like, I just wish that some dude had a. Had a tree come to his house in the interview like that. I couldn't imagine it getting much bigger than that. Yeah, so let's let's hope that doesn't happen. Have to deal with all the aftermaths. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Like I said, you know, taking the time to be on the show. Um, you know, you're some you know watching you write your stuff and kind of you know watching that journey you've been on. So. I kind of want to start, you know, from the beginning and tell me, like, how did you get, um, you know, in the journalism world and how have you stayed there for so long, long um, being able to continue to do things that you love that are not MMA related? Well, uh, my MMA journey started back at UFC 2. Uh, I had a friend in high in school. Uh, in junior high, basically telling me, hey, have you seen this thing called UFC? And I was like, no, what is it? He's like, oh, dude, you got to watch it. So this is back in the you know, blockbuster days when you could rent videos. And he had rented UFC 1. And I watched it, and I was just so blown away. We were all into martial arts, but I was just so blown away. And then his mom let us rent UFC 2 on pay-per-view. So we watched UFC 2 <laughs> on pay-per-view, and I was immediately hooked. I was immediately a fan. And I, I continued being a fan through high school and college and just, you know, kind of casually, you know, watching the sport. And then uh, in 2003, uh, I was you know, writing and had gone to school for English literature and journalism. Uh, and I was doing, you know, writing as much as you could. But if you've ever been involved in newspaper business starting out, there's not a lot of money. So I was basically writing on my own, just kind of doing what I could. And I used to follow a website called MMA Weekly. And they had a daily radio show hosted by Ryan Bennett. You would have all the guests on there, and it was just really the most access you could get to you know, MMA at that point because there just wasn't anything else much out there. And his show mm-hmm. was great, and I was a fan. I listened to it all the time. And then at one point, he decided to have a co-hosting contest. And so uh, he had people call in and offer to like do a take, you know, kind of like a Jim Rome take. And the uh, best you know, contenders would all square off in a final and then there would be voting to, to decide who was the co-host. So the finalists were me, Jeff Kane, who is still at MMA Weekly, and Frank Trigg, a former UFC welterweight contender. Uh, in yeah. the end, uh, Trigg ended up getting the co-hosting gig, uh, which I kind of felt like we were allowed gunned in that one. Uh, but oh, yeah. uh, Ryan, Ryan stayed in touch and just said, you know, hey, we'd love to work with you in some way, shape, or form. You know, anything else you're interested in doing? I said, well, actually, I'm a writer. I'm not really, like, I like doing radio. I like doing podcasting, but I'm really a writer. And he's like, well, let's see what you can write. So I started writing for them in 2003. Uh, started going to live events for MMA Weekly in 2005. Uh, that was my first UFC coverage. I think it was UFC, I want to say UFC 53 was the first one I attended as media. Or maybe it was UFC 40, I can't remember the number, 43, 45, somewhere around there, somewhere in that, that range of like 45 to 50, somewhere in there. I, I, I attended my first show as media. Um, and that's been basically it. I've stayed in the MMA business in some form or fashion ever since then. Obviously, not working full time. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't make any money. I was just doing it because I enjoyed the sport and I liked doing it. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. as time went on, I went from MMA Weekly to Bleacher Report. Uh, I went from Bleacher Report to Fox Sports. I was there for four years. Uh, left box sports, and then I've uh, been at MMA fighting now for the last two years. And that's crazy because, like you said, you know, for you to stay in the business as long as you have um, and to be a fan from the very beginning uh, just speaks volumes 
comes to the passion that a lot of people have for this sport to grow and you know more and more people are starting to cover it because because like you said you know your first introduction was ufc too i think my first introduction was a wec wreckage (laughs) (laughs) where it was aldo and and, uh, all that story, all that story made me feel was really old because I realized how long I've been involved in this sport. But yeah, uh, I was a, I was a fan first, and I remain a fan to this day. I think that's, uh, you know, I've actually, you know, I've covered a lot of sporting events uh, over the years beyond MMA. I've gone to football games and things like that, and uh, you know, talked to some journalists, and I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, some people, and I've also done stuff in the entertainment beat, and. You know, I've been at, uh, I go to San Diego Comic-Con every year, not the last two years because of the pandemic, but I go every year and I do a lot of media roundtables, a lot of interviews, and I've gone to a lot of media roundtables and I've had journalists, you know, tell me, you know, like, oh, I don't really like this show. Or I don't really like this actor. I don't really like this movie, but I got to cover it. Like, it's a job. They didn't really want to be there. And I'm just like, I never want to do that. I never want to cover something that I'm not actually enjoying being there. Like, I understand you're going to, maybe cover certain things you're not as much of a fan of, but like, I want to be a fan of what I'm doing. And I still love mixed martial arts to this day. That's why, you know, like I said, I, I, I crossed over and done a little bit of stuff in other sports. I'm a massive football fan. Um, you know, I, I love college wrestling, Olympic wrestling, things like that. But yeah, I don't really have a desire to cross over and cover. And I don't really have a desire to cross over and cover NBA. I enjoy the NBA for what it is, but I'm not a big NBA guy. So why would I want to cover it? I want to cover something I enjoy, and I love MMA. Yeah, and you, there's so many years of people, you know, like you said, doing what you don't want to do in order to get where you want to be. But if you've already gotten the opportunity to cover what you want to, why would you go to anything else that you didn't have it a passion for? Because it's it's no different than seeing a photographer, and you can see that the subject that he's taking pictures of is either uncomfortable or in a weird position. I'm like, nobody stands like that. Like. You can tell they don't want to be there. And it's just like it'll show in your writing. It'll show in all the work. You really just don't want to be there and you don't have the passport like you do for MMA. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, uh, you know, this was a passion project. You know, I had a lot of people, you know, reach out and ask for advice, you know, getting involved in MMA journalism. I usually tell them the same thing. I just tell them, you know, write as much as you can, uh, do as much as you can, but understand at the beginning, you're not going to get, you're not going to make much money if at any. I mean, I worked for years for free and it wasn't because MMA Weekly was taking advantage of me. There was just no money to pay me. Like there wasn't money in the sport. Uh, mm-hmm. I just did it because I loved it. And as soon as they could pay me, they did. And, and now I'm lucky and very fortunate that it's my full-time job. All I do is, you know, cover the sport for my job. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, uh, if you're, if you're in the sport, you know, I'd hope you'd love it. And I, and I hope that you're involved in it, but also understand that, you know, anything like anything else, it's a labor of love. You have to, you really do have to love it. Uh, because again, chances are you're going to to work really hard and, and, and find a certain niche for yourself to actually get a full-time job in this business. Yeah. And I mean, right now there's really a handful that are really, uh, you know, staples in the community, obviously, Ariel, you know, yourself, James Lynch, who you could tell, you know, James, especially, and it's not taken away from anybody else, but that dude works harder than anyone else I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, because, uh, like, you know, I worked at, you know, when I worked at a lot of outlets, like, uh, you know, I've kind of gotten their reputation of being a hard worker and, and, you know, always being willing to do more and do other stuff. And it's, you know, it's just, I, I love my job, so I don't mind doing it. Like, it's a pleasure to do it. Like, I don't want to, like, I'm fortunate that I have a job that I absolutely adore. Why would I not want to do it? And why would I not want to put everything into it? Exactly. And I, that's so cool to hear because again, you see people get burnout. You see people get to a point where they're like, all right, I'm 10 years in and I haven't made it big. I'm giving up, but they're still able to produce quality work and they're still able to do something that they're passionate about. So, you know, to those people who have been in there longer, like, you know, getting to that five, 10 year mark and, you know, starting to think about giving it up. What do you say to them um, in that moment to kind of mirror your success and where you are now? Uh, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but, you know, never give up on something you love. I mean, um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, um, you know, anything, you know, anything you're passionate about, you're going to have to put a lot into it. And I don't care if you're a, 
a mail carrier or you're a writer or you're a, uh, you know, a cameraman, whatever your job is, you know, if you find passion and you love what you do, you got to put 110% of yourself into it. Um, and listen, I can't, there's no magical advice I can give you to get involved in, you know, something like MMA journalism and find success because, you know, I'll be honest, there, there's a, a small number of jobs, a small number of, of gigs that people get to do this full time. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. Like I said, I, I think, you know, Ariel, uh, Helwani put out a tweet last week and like Ariel and I have both been involved. You know, I, I've been around a, a, you know, a little bit longer than Ariel, but you know, Ariel's been around for a while. And I, you know, we've been, I, I sent him a message because obviously, you know, the MMA hour is coming back. He's going to be working in MMA fighting again. And I sent him a message right after. And I said, you know, I've always considered you a professional rival. We've always known each other. I mean, we've, you know, we've known each other for years, you know, talked to shows and stuff. Uh, but I said, I always yeah. considered you a professional rival. And I mean that as an absolute compliment because Ariel does such a great job. He makes me do a better job. And so like, I need that. And so like, I've been in this industry for as long as I have. And now for the first time, you know, a decade of knowing the guy, I'm about to be a teammate with Ariel and, and, you know, Brad Akimoto and all the other guys out there, Mark Raimondi, who I worked with at Fox sports. And now he's over at ESPN. Like I don't consider anyone a, a rival in a sense of, I don't like them. I consider them a rival and I want to, I want to be better because they push me to be better. Um, and so that's, that's my thing, you know, outwork the other guy. That's, that's the best advice I can give you. I, I, I don't have any beef with anybody in this industry in terms of like, you know, other journalists, actually, uh, I consider a lot of them good friends, uh, even if they don't work on the same side as me, but, uh, every single one of them pushes me to be better because when I see somebody get an interview that I want to get, I'm like, Oh man, I really want to get that interview. Or when I see them do an article, I'm like, man, I want to write something great like that or whatever the case may be. It's not jealousy. It's not envy. It's, it's, you got to, you always got to push yourself and, and try to outwork the other guy. And so that's probably the best advice I can. Anything you love, you're going to put 110% of yourself into, and then always be willing to outwork the other guy. Yeah. It seems like pretty simple advice at the same time, you know, it really is very, very clear cut to the point, but at the same time, you have so many people who just give up because they see those people, like you said, they're rivals or they're something else at that level, and they just kind of drop. Watched it happen so much over the years where people have so much potential and they just leave because they've lost them or they've given up on themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, again, bringing Ariel's a good example. Like, Ariel's obviously the biggest journalist in the game, the biggest, you know, uh, journalism personality in mixed martial arts. And I have zero problem setting what Ariel does. is fantastic. He does an amazing job. I'm not Ariel. I can't, I don't want to, I couldn't be yeah. Ariel. I'm not, you know, he's got a, a gift and he does a great job at it. But what Ariel does, uh, and, and again, the message I responded to him last week on Twitter when he said that, you know, no one should ever try to downgrade people doing media or other companies getting involved in media. We should invite more people into the industry. We should invite more companies to cover mixed martial arts. And I agree with them 110%. I don't consider anybody a rival. I consider everybody uh, as somebody that's going to Because I remember when I, I put out the tweet. I said, I remember my first, one of my first UFC shows I covered in Atlantic City. You know, Press Row was me, two other guys from MMA Weekly, three guys from Sure Dog, and I think there was one local newspaper guy. And there may have been one person from Full Contact Fighter, I can't remember. But that was Media Row, that was it. There were like eight people, and like six of us were from two websites. There was nobody there covering <laughs> the show. Nobody cared about the sport at that point. And so the fact that, you know, Ariel is out there doing his thing, and John Morgan's out there doing his thing, and Mark Raimondi and Brad Alcomoto are doing their thing, and I'm doing my thing, and uh, you know, all these other sites are out there. James Lynch is out there doing his thing. Like, uh, it's awesome. And I hope more people get to do it. Like I want to where I want MMA to get to the point where it's like the NFL media, where there's, you know, 200 people working full time, just covering our sport. Cause right now it is a, you know, fairly small number of people, you know, people being able to do it you know, on a full time basis. Um, yeah. but yeah, I, I hope everyone gets, man, if you're loving and you, and you're good at your job, I hope more people get to do it. I, I want that. I want to see that for the sport. It's so exciting to hear that. <laughs> Just like how passionate you are. You're like, I want more of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just the same thing. Like, you know, like I see people, you know, creating their own thing. And that's so amazing to me. Like I said, you know, uh, you know, seeing James, you know, James Lynch, who, you know, I probably met in person a handful of times at shows and things like that. Uh, a great example uh, is Mike Heck, you know, a guy I work with MMA fighting. 
Yeah, he used to have mm -hmm. me on his podcast and his show all the time when he was just starting out. And uh, I would go on a show all the time and we do shows and I got to know him. He's a great guy. I remember uh, he brought me on to like have me help him do it. Like I was doing interviews with him because he wanted to have me on to do that, which I thought that was so awesome. He did that. Uh, and now Mike is working with me. Mike does a fantastic job. Um, and you know, it, it's just through a labor of love and through his own hard work that now, you know, he's getting to do what he loves and I freaking love that. And, and Mike does a fantastic job and, um, I'm you know, honored to now call him a teammate. Yeah. It's not something that gets to happen very often. Like you said, the rivals and working for the different promotion or, you know, the different companies or the different websites, whatever you want to call them. But you see this full circle thing where these guys, you helped out in the now I help out and kind of redistribute that we'll call it wealth in this situation but redistribute that love for the sport and show people can be done you just yeah and like i said there's no magic formula to it you know people as i said people reach out to me all the time and ask advice and say what can i do to get involved in journalism and again i you know i don't want to repeat myself here but it's just you know a, you know, be willing to do what the other guy isn't, be willing, willing to outwork the competition, but also understand that, you know, you're going to start at ground level. Like, I've had people come in day one and they're like, okay, so when do I get to interview Conor McGregor? And I'm like, okay, slow down. Like, you know, you're not going to interview Conor McGregor, you know, your first day on the job. Chances are. Um, you know, I, one of my biggest pieces of advice I always give journalists when they're starting out is I say go to local MMA shows. Uh, yeah. and cover them because, A, local regional MMA shows are dying for coverage. And B, the next Conor McGregor, the next Dustin Poirier, the next whoever is going to come from those shows. So, like, I yeah. did an interview uh, with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson before his fight this week at UFC 264. And I, in the middle of the interview, I kind of mentioned to him, I was like, you know, our first interview, he was 4-0, and and he was going to train with George St. Pierre to help him get ready to fight Carlos Condit. And he was serving as, like, a oh. Carlos Condit clone. And he was just getting ready to like kind of make his full move from karate and kickboxing into, into MMA. And he had just had double ACL replacement surgery, if I remember correctly. And at that point he was, you know, he was, he was already kind of a, kind of a hype prospect, but like, again, four and oh, whatever it was. And I mentioned that to him. He kind of laughs like, yeah, man, we go back a long ways. Cause I remember, you know, at that point, Joseph Benavidez, we go back to, you know, there was a time before he was in the WEC where he was actually, uh, getting the possibility of going into, I care if it was Dream or Pride or which one it was at the time, he was going to fight Kid Yamamoto, who's a legend. And I'd heard about this oh, kid. God. I was like, who's Joseph Benavidez? And, uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah. And so his manager got me on the line with him. So I've known Joseph for, you know, at this point, whatever it is, like 12 years, 13 years, whatever it is, um, going back there. But that's, again, but all those guys started somewhere. When I knew Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, I – he was four and oh, he wasn't in the UFC. I didn't you know all I knew is he had a cool nickname and he was a karate guy. Uh, Joseph yeah, right. was a guy who was a guy who trained with Uriah Faber who might be getting the fight with Kid Yamamoto. That's all I knew about him at that time. Uh, and again, I've covered his entire career. So start, start be understanding you're going to start at that level. You're probably not going to get those kind of, you're not going to be able to, you know, call up Dustin Poirier on the phone and ask him for an interview right away. But if you continue to do a good job, and you work at it, then you will make those contacts. People want to talk to you. People want to do interviews with you. People want to trust you with information. Um, again, it mm -hmm. just takes time. Oh, that's and, a fun know, one. <laughs> time and patience. Time and patience are key. <laughs> I I remember it's so funny because, like you said, you know, going to the local shows, you know, when they started doing some shows in Newport, Rich people no idea where that is. Uh, but it was where I was living. I'm, you know, that we had guys like, you know, Giancarlo Sarr, who's fighting for BKFC in a couple of weeks. We had Alex Spartan Nicholson, Mike Perry fighting in basically in the middle of nowhere. And I remember watching him just going, I see the potential. And I remember, you know, making the connections. And I was taking pictures at the time. And Alex Nicholson's dad was sitting next to me. And he kept bumping me. Hey, hey, that's my son. And just made it with somebody in the crowd, you know, somebody there, that, you know, five, ten or down the road. Those are the same people who remember you. Those are the same people who, who, like you said, will trust you with something they wouldn't tell somebody else or would, you know, give you the time of day when they're, you know, at their wits end when it comes to interviews. You go, oh, yeah, I remember. No, no, he's good. He's good.
Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, that you you, you earn that kind of trust, and uh, you know, like I said, you know, like I said, I've had the honor. Like I, you know, I don't know if it was earlier this year, or last year, I lose track of time. But when Stefan Struve announced his retirement, you know, uh, you know, when he was retiring, you know, his manager reached out to me, and I've known Stefan and covered Stefan's entire career, you know, from going back years. And when he was giving like his first interviews about retirement, he talked to me, and I think he did one other interview at the time. So it's just two people. But like, I take mm-hmm. a great honor in that. That like, a, you know, a guy who I've considered a phenomenal fighter and like, you know, great guy. Stefan Struve's always been an incredibly good guy. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he's retiring. It's one of the biggest moments of his career. And, you know, he's reaching out to like, want to talk to me to do the interview talking about the end of his career. Like that means a lot to me. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff means a lot to me. I never take that kind of thing for granted. And, uh, and that's the key. Like I said, never take it for granted, you know, never take, never, never take anything for granted. And I surely don't. Um, you know, when I have people tell me like they want to do interviews with me or, they want to tell me their story. Uh, I never take that for granted because that means something. Absolutely. And it's, it's a different animal. We talk about this so much is that, you know, over the past couple of years, it seems like, you know, at first fighters were really easy to get a hold of, and they're still approachable and more reachable than any other sport uh, that is out there today. There's no hockey player, basketball player, football player, that you're messaging on Instagram or, you know, Twitter to do an interview. And they're like, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, we've seen kind of an influx over the years where, you know, fighters are starting to pick and choose who they do interviews with. So do you feel like that's a a step in the right direction as far as where the loyalty is, or is that kind of taking a step backwards? No, I mean, listen, you know, and, and I'm not saying this because I, I you know, generally have really good access with fighters and managers and PR people, but uh, the mm-hmm. reality is the sport is getting big to the point where, you know, fighters can't accept every interview request. Not everyone, anyways. I mean, there's a lot of fighters out there who would love to do interviews and no one's really talking to them. Um, and that's what I talk mm-hmm. about going to local shows and paying attention to them because, you know, again, those are the guys who are going to become the next stars. And, and once you kind of ingratiate yourself with them. They're going to remember that. They're going to remember that you were there four fights into their career, three fights into their career, coming off a tough loss, all those kind of things. And those are the kind of relationships you build with people. Uh, you know, you're there to take Like a, a perfect example for me personally, uh, you know, was Kamar Usman. Kamar Usman was going on the ultimate fighter. And at that point I was at Fox sports and I was kind of the ultimate fighter guy. And so I was doing pre, I did pre interviews with all the cast members before the show started. I was kind of getting their backgrounds, doing interviews for Fox. And I got on the phone with Kamaru. We had a great conversation, such a great guy. And we stayed in touch throughout the show and afterwards. And now, you know, like I said, you know, Kamaru is the best welterweight in the world, my opinion, best pound for pound fighter in the world. Um, And, you know, like I, like if I drop a message on his Instagram after a fight, say congrats on the win, like he'll never not get back to me. And that means something like, you know, he'll say thank you or he'll say thanks, Damon, or whatever. That kind of stuff means something because that's just a relationship I've had with a guy like that for so many years. And yeah. I never I never forget about that. But my point being about like, you know, the, the more access is, is also understanding that, you know, as the sport gets bigger. Um, you know, you, you, that stuff is going to, it's going to get harder. So that's why you want to be involved with fighters at the ground level, because they're going to remember you when they are at, you know, championship level. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, again, a, a guy like Kamaru is the best welterweight on the planet. He can pick and choose who he speaks to. He does not have to speak to anybody he doesn't want to speak to. The fact that he still speaks to me and still wants to give me the time, I never take that for granted. So that's kind of the key. And that's why I say, like, access is awesome. But again, it's all about, you know, putting yourself in a position to, for they want to talk to you. They want to speak to you. They want to give you that time. Absolutely. And I kind of want to shift gears in this because with you having the opportunity uh, to be as passionate as you are and have a full-time job in the MMA media, it's kind of given you an outlet to explore more of your interests. So talking more on the nerdcore movement, you know, segment. So I kind of want to talk about what it's like, you know, kind of bring those two worlds together and we realized very quickly that there are a lot of fighters who love games that love anime that love all kinds of stuff that most ever expect them to like so so what's it like to put those two things together and those two things simultaneously in your life 
Well, I've always been a bit of a, of a pop culture nerd. Uh, you know, I've collected comic books since I was like eight years old. Uh, I love, you know, horror movies. I love movies in general. So I've just always been a fan. Um, and years ago when I was writing, you know, I was still writing doing MMA, but I was like, you know, I really like to get into writing, you know, some entertainment stuff, right? Movie reviews. I did it in college when I worked for the uh, University of Cincinnati newspaper. When I was in college, I wrote like movie reviews and concert reviews and things like that. And I was like, I would love to do some more of that, you know? Uh, and so I started doing it here and there for a couple of websites, a couple of blogs here and there. And, you know, there wasn't really money involved in it or whatever, but I was just enjoying it. And, and I truly believed it made me a better writer. Um, but over time, I was like, why am I writing for somebody else when I can just write for myself? So I started Nerdcore Movement back in 2013 just as a way to write my own stuff and have, you know, I can cover what I want to cover. And so I started the website and, uh, you know, it's still very much a labor of love. I mean, if it was paying me full time, it would be a whole other story. But uh, I just love doing <laughs> it. I, I love I love writing movie reviews. I love, you know, writing about, you know, Marvel and DC. And, and I now have a horror movie podcast that I host uh, called Rewind of the Living Dead with my uh, with my partner, Patrick Vera, who uh, who's phenomenal. He does uh, stuff in his own right. So. Um, yeah, like I said, I, it's it's great, and you're right. There's a lot of MMA people. I mean, one of the funniest one of the funniest things I did back in the day um, when I was at MMA Weekly, I was doing the the podcast over there, and uh, we actually had special Walking Dead episodes because I found out like Eve Edwards is a massive Walking Dead fan, Joe Lozon's a massive Walking Dead fan. Like I had found out all these fighters were big Walking Dead fans, and I'd actually interviewed like Norman Reedus. I had him on the show. Uh, I had a couple wow. of the actors on from the show, but they were big. They were big fans of MMA, and so it was like that crossover is great. Like that's how I became. I became friends with uh, uh, with, with some actors just because like they're MMA fans. Like I was just blown away by like how they were like MMA fans. Like, geez, like I'm a fan of you for your acting, and they're like I'm a fan of MMA. So it's a lot of crossover, and it's awesome. I love doing it. Uh, you know, it's definitely a passion project. But but yeah, I just I love pop culture. I always love pop culture. Well, and that's, I think that's one of the things I had saw that drew me to you. Cause like you said, not just doing MMA, you know, the profile picture with Kevin Smith is obviously one of the coolest things ever. Uh, being a big fan of just about everything he's done. I'm going to shift some gears and I'm going to excite you. I really want to debate Tarantino movies. I know I'm going to lose, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still going to try. Uh, so for you, being such a Kevin Smith fan, what was it like to meet him? And where would you put the top three, his top three movies on your list? Um, meeting Kevin Smith was really, really cool. I've been a massive Kevin Smith fan for a lot of years. You know, first discovering Clerks uh, in uh, in college. Um, and I've just been a fan. I've seen him, I've seen him in, I'll say in concert, but like, you know, live speaking engagements, like probably... Uh, almost 20 times now, like between like going to see him locally, going to see him do live podcasts, going to see him at Comic-Con. Uh, I've seen him so many times. And then he finally had come, uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. He finally come here uh, to do a show and I got to meet him and get a picture with him. And it was just like one of the coolest things ever. And he was such an incredibly nice guy and uh, everything you'd hope to be. So yeah, I'm just, a, I, I'm just, a, I'm a massive fan of his filmmaking, but I'm a massive fan of his, uh, of his uh, podcast. I love his podcast he does with Spodcast and uh, Hollywood Babylon and, and, and Fat Man Beyond and all those shows he does. I love all those. And uh, so, yeah, I'm just a big fan of it. So as far as Kevin Smith movies go, um, ranking top three, I would probably have to go. I mean, listen, it's hard to get away from the original Jersey trilogy. Uh, so I'd probably have to go Chasing Amy, Clerks, and Mallrats in that order. But uh, I've enjoyed pretty much all his films, even the ones that, you know, no one seems to really like, like Yoga Hosers and uh, Tusk. I still really enjoy those movies. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was great. Jay and Silent Bob Reboot was great. Um, yeah, I love all his movies. But if you're asking me to rate them, I'd go Chasing Amy, Clerks, and Mallrats. I mean, that's kind of where I expected it, because those are like the OG. Like, those are the films that really kind of established everything for everyone else and we went and actually saw when the reboot came through tampa we got to see it and it was so funny because he pulled jericho out of the crowd halfway through the show and um i really was worried that the reboot was just going to be garbage let's be honest and i just remember watching it going this is really good i can't believe these have stood 
the test of time and they've held up for as long as they have. And that's just a testament to his writing itself and who he picked to portray those people. Absolutely. Yeah, you can see my wall in front of me. You can see I have a lot of Kevin Smith uh, posters and autographs and stuff on the side of my wall over here, but it's not in camera angle, so you can't see it. But I do have a lot of Kevin Smith stuff here. <laughs> Great. Tell us about all the stuff that's off camera. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so with so I'm going to go to Tarantino route. And I'm going to say something, and I want you to defend it because I know what you're going to say because I know how you feel about this movie. All right. But I did not think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a good movie. Well, <laughs> Tell me why I'm wrong. Like, like anything, I, I entitle everyone to their opinions, even if your opinion is wrong. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know what's funny? Uh, when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the theater, I enjoyed it. But when it was over, I was kind of like, you know, yeah. I, I didn't love that. I was like, I didn't really love that. I liked it, but I was like, I, I didn't really get it. I just didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it when it came out on Blu-ray, and I watched it, and I enjoyed it a little bit more. And I watched it again, I enjoyed it a little bit more. And I watched it again a little bit more. And now I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood like 20 times. I'm currently in the middle of reading the book adaptation. Uh, <laughs> I've listened to every Tarantino podcast where he's talking about Once Upon yes, a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those movies that grows on you over time when you start to appreciate, you know, what it is. It's a day in the life of Hollywood. That's really what it comes down to and it's really following three separate stories. You're following Rick Dalton's journey as this, you know, previously kind of A-list TV star who's now kind of like a, B, a B-list guy who's struggling to you know maintain some sort of relevance. You got Cliff relevant, Booth yeah. who's his yeah, who's his uh, who's his stunt double? Who's obviously involved in his own things and trying to you know, basically make a life for himself, being Rick Dalton's you know double, being Rick Dalton's gopher. And then you got Sharon Tate, who's the young ingenue who's trying to make her way in Hollywood. She's just getting some fame and those kind of things. You're following all those stories, and and obviously at the end they all kind of intercede. Uh, and the humor, the dialogue, it's great. And like I said, I mean. There's not a super deep plot. I mean, I, I heard Tarantino say recently, like he's like, it's not a super plot-driven movie. It's a day in the life. And no. when I understood that more, I I, I appreciate it more because it's really a it's a day in the life story. <laughs> well, and I you're like you know your value to your opinion, and it's wrong. But it is sometimes his <laughs> movies are something you have to watch a few times to really get that. And I think we only gave it the once over, like you said, in the theater. Whereas when hateful eight did the road show on the 50 millimeter, we went and saw that and they did the intermission. And I just remember thinking this movie is really weird, but I can't stop watching. Like, I can't wait to see what happens next as crazy as it all was. Yeah. Like I'm Tarantino is my favorite director. So I'm a, a little biased in terms of, like my feelings towards his movies, but like, um, ever since I'm trying to think of the first, I think Jackie Brown was the first Tarantino movie I saw in the theater, uh, when it came out, when that, when that came out in mm-hmm. 97 or whatever it was, that was the first one of his I saw in the theater. And I've seen everyone since then in the theater. And I'll admit like some of his wow. movies, like when I saw when I saw Django Unchained, like I loved that immediately. It was such a freaking amazing movie. I loved everything about that movie from the very first time I saw it. When I saw *Inglorious Bastards* the first time, I enjoyed it, but I was like, "Okay, this is pretty good." But like, I'm just not a big war movie fan. I'm not really huge outside like *Full Metal Jack* and stuff like that. Like, I'm not a big war movie guy. But then I watched *Inglorious Bastards* a second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, and I just really fell in love with it because I kind of started to understand what was so great about. It. And that's really what happened with *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*. Like now, like I don't really rate. Tarantino's movies because I really do love them all. I always say Pulp Fiction is my favorite because I've seen because it the most Pulp times. And it was, well, yeah. it was the first Tarantino movie I saw. I see someone very much like UFC. Someone's like, "Have you seen Pulp Fiction?" I'm like, "No." They're like, "Oh my god, you got to watch it!" And it just cracked me up. It was so good. Um, and then I became a Tarantino fan. So I always say Pulp Fiction is my favorite, but I really don't rank rank them because like I've seen Django recently again, and it's so amazing. Like I can quote that movie left, right, and center. Um, but then, like, once upon a time, like, if, you, if you're forcing, drilling me down to, like, rank my favorite Tarantino films, yeah, I would put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably top three because it's that Ooh. good now. Like, when I watch it now, 
it's so good. The performances are so good. The story's so well done. The dialogue is so great. And I really, I'm a, I'm, listen, I'm a fan of Hollywood. Like I'm a fan of acting. I'm a fan of actors. And so seeing a movie about that is just tremendous. And it's a lot of fun when you really start to appreciate it for what it is. Uh, it's a really, really good movie. Yeah. And that's, I'm no dummy. Like I know you love Tarantino. I was like, this is the perfect topic to bring up to him. I know it's either going to be here wrong or it's going to be, well, that's your opinion. And you did both. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of it when I first saw it. When I first saw it, I was kind of confused. I was kind of like, I don't really get this. Like, I don't really get the story. I don't, what, what did we see? Like what happened? Like, I don't really get it. And then when I watched it numerous times, it started to come together for me, what he was trying to accomplish with that film. Uh, and now mm -hmm. I really do appreciate it. But yeah, like I was with you on the first time. Like I still enjoyed it, but I was like, I don't really get the point of this movie, really. Um, and then again, when I watched it over and over and over again, I, yeah. And so, like I said, now that I've seen it, and and again, uh, you know, just understanding the passion that he puts into the characters uh, is so much fun. And like I said, I mean, as I've seen it more and more, you know, I crack up at it. It's got some great dialogue uh there's a part i mean not to ruin it not to like give you spoilers but like there's a part and this is the subtlety of tarantino's dialogue it, that cracks me up like I, I i've seen this movie you know at this point i've seen it 20 times at least and there's a every time i see it something else stands out to me there's a part where he's talking to uh the little girl when he's filming the the lancer pilot and he kind of breaks down crying and he's just like you know watch basically watching my career get flushed down the toilet where i'm no where i'm non-existent with nobody and she's like, uh, she's like, she's like, what's wrong, Rick? What's wrong? And he goes, he's like, I'm sorry. He's like, he's like, you'll be, you'll be feeling it about 15 years. <laughs> he just, he tells like an eight year old girl that like 15 years her career is gonna be down the toilet just like his. And I just cracked up laughing. He's like, wait about 15 years and you'll oh see. And I died laughing like it was such a throwaway line. It wasn't like a big like flashy line, but just watch Leonardo DiCaprio say that he's like, wait about 15 years and you'll be feeling it. And I was, I cried laughing at that. So there's just like so many great like lines that come out of that movie every time I watch it. And I, I, I will say it here so everybody can hold me to it. I think I'll give it another go just because you're right. There are some of those movies that you watch the first time and you're like, this movie was, you watch it again. And I hate to use this as an example because I'm going way off the Tarantino train, but Napoleon Dynamite was that movie. The first time I watched it, I'm like, this is the dumbest movie I've ever watched. And I watched it a second time, and I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know why that is. It's. I remember when uh, The Big Lebowski came out, when it first came out. And everyone told me it's like the funniest movie ever. And I watched it. And at this point, I wasn't like a huge, like I was just like a, I think I was in, I want to say I was in college or something. And somebody's like, oh, you got to see Big Lebowski. It's hilarious. And I watched it. And mm -hmm. I was like, I don't really get this. Like, I guess it's okay. And then, like, I love the Coen Brothers because, you know, I love Fargo. I loved Raising Arizona. I've been a big Coen Brothers fan. Uh, but I watched it. I was like, yeah, this wasn't – I didn't – I don't really get it. It didn't really make me laugh. And now I can quote you, Big Lebowski, from start to finish, and it's one of the funniest movies ever. And I think it's just over time you grow and evolve, and when you see something multiple times, it can become more, you know, uh, you understand it better, you like it better. And so, yeah, like that was a movie. Like, if you would ask me after I saw The Big Lebowski the first time, I would say that's terrible. I didn't really get. I don't think it's funny at all. And now <laughs> I would, I would smack myself back then because it was. It is one of the funniest movies of all time. I can quote that movie from start to finish. Every time I talk to Clay Guida, uh, he's a massive Lebowski fan. Like, I'll drop a Lebowski line during our interviews, just like make sure he catches it because he's such a Lebowski fan. And like, he'll quote it back to me or whatever. Quote me some other line from the movie. Uh, but I love that movie now. I absolutely adore that movie now, but I, it took me seeing it a couple three times to finally appreciate it. Yeah. And sometimes it does, but a movie like that, I don't, I think I had first seen it probably eight years ago, seven, seven, eight years ago, because I was like, ah, I'm not into that. Like, it just doesn't appeal to me. And I remember watching it going, this is hysterical. Everything about this, like, this is the guy I see in the supermarket, you know, walking down the aisle, you know, bathrobe drinking out of the container like we've all seen that we've all seen that and i just went let's see the rest of his life and to see the rest of it play out 
Um, and just the interactions, you know, John Goodman's fantastic. Steve Buscemi, um, just everybody in that movie really just made it. And of course, Sam Elliott, just the voice alone makes it, makes that role in his, you know, in that movie. Yeah. It's just like I said, some things you need to experience more than once. And I actually say most of Tarantino's last four or five films have been that way. You know, like the hateful eight, I enjoyed it the first time I saw it. I saw it in the theater. I actually saw it on Christmas Day. I remember going to see it on Christmas Day when it opened. And I enjoyed <laughs> it. I enjoyed it. But I was like, oh, this, this isn't Tarantino's best. And then when I rewatched it and rewatched it and rewatched it, I just enjoyed it more and more. And I think it's because the, it's because Tarantino is so dialogue driven that you have to see it to understand it more. Like the only film of his that's not as dialogue driven is, is Kill Bill, the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much action in that movie and and that's easier to fall in love with because you can be like oh my god like the scene of her versus the crazy 88s is insane or her versus gogo -Go is insane yeah. and you can remember those easier uh and there's a lot of moments in kill bill like where you can see like it's not about the dialogue it's about the moment of the movie like her waking up in her hospital bed and you know crushing that dude's head in the door there's moments you can remember uh, so much of Tarantino's other movies are about dialogue. Like Hateful Eight is literally five guys in a room, or six guys and a woman in a room, you know, yeah. in, a, in a room talking. <laughs> and so, like, you have to learn to appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, and I, I one hundred percent agree with that. And you're right. And I, I love that you brought up the Kill Bill because I know there's talks about them making a third one. Um, you know, obviously not. With, doesn't seem like it would be with Uma. You know, we know there's that history between the two of them. You know, do you feel like they should make a third one at this point based on well, the fact that all of his other ones are dialogue driven instead of, you know, action? And well, Tarantino, and you know, Tarantino said he has one film left, you know, before he retires, which I hope he changes his mind. But yeah. I understand wanting to go out on top. But I don't think Kill Bill will be the final film. He's going to do one more. I don't think that would be it. Uh, I, I'm sure he could get Uma Thurman back. And he also talked about, you know, casting her daughter, Maya Hawk, who's in. Uh, Stranger Things, you're talking about casting her to play a young BB, which would be awesome. Yeah, uh, but fantastic. I just, I, I love Kill Bill. I, I actually, I think I like Kill Bill 2 more than Kill Bill 1, uh, but both are great. Um, but I, I kind of hope he does another original film for his last, for his last movie, because again, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was not anything I had hoped for or wanted. And now, as I've said, how much I love it. So mm -hmm. I hope he does something else totally original and totally Tarantino. Yeah, absolutely. Really looking forward. I'm glad you brought up stranger things. Cause I'm really looking forward to that next season. Um, just seeing some of the people they've got to bring on the show just should make this fantastic. So I know, you know, the nerd cards coming out and anybody watching this is like, I thought this was about MMA, but it goes <laughs> beyond it. It's so much more. <laughs> Yeah, as you can see, like, I know the new season of Stranger Things are going to have Robert England from Nightmare on Elm Street. If you can kind of see blinding in the light back here, uh, my Nightmare on Elm Street 3 poster that's back there. Uh, I am mm -hmm. a massive uh, Nightmare on Elm Street fan, so Robert England being in the new season of Stranger Things should be awesome. Yeah, that and then Sherman Augustus from Into the Badlands and the countless other things he's done. Um, that should be really interesting to see the character, you know, kind of like the the badass character that he's going to bring because he just seems to always have that presence when he's on the screen. So like you said, really looking forward to that. And if you want to watch a really good uh, Freddy Krueger movie, there is a full length one on YouTube that was made in my hometown quite some years ago. Uh, so if you want to see that, I'll send you the link later. You'll get a kick out of it. Yeah, I'm a massive, uh, massive Nightmare on Elm Street fan. It's my favorite franchise. I actually have a signed photograph of Robert England from when I was a kid, and I was way too young to be watching Nightmare on Elm Street, but I had sent away, and he sent me a photo back that says something like, you know, see you in your dreams, you know, Robert England. It's a black and white Freddy Krueger photo, and uh, I still have it tucked away in a drawer somewhere. But, yeah, I was a kid, and I loved Freddy Krueger. I loved Nightmare on Elm Street, which – Probably explains a lot about why I am the way I am today. Uh, but yeah, I loved I loved Nightmare on Elm Street from okay. Like I said, I do my own horror movie podcast now uh, called Rewind of the Living Dead, and we review horror movies. That's all we do. And so, like, I'm a massive horror movie fan. Probably that's probably the thing I love most is horror movies, which is cool because you have all these passions. Like you said, you know, the pop culture, 
loving pop culture and loving horror are really two different things because that's a genre all on itself, you know, all on its own. And it has to be done a certain way and it doesn't have to be done a certain way. There's no rules when it comes to it to really make a good horror movie, but it's all about what you do with what you have available to you. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of part of the fun of doing my podcast for the last, you know, we started last October and now we're almost 50 episodes deep. Uh, cause we wow. do a show every week. Um, part of the fun of that has been discovering new movies, like, uh, stuff I would have probably never watched had I not started doing that podcast. Um, mm -hmm. and like a movie that came out last year called the Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is kind of a horror comedy. And, uh, I never really had any desire to see it. And then I heard a couple of people mention it. And I was like, we should review this on the podcast because it was new. And now it's like one of my favorite movies and the director, Jim Cummings is one of my favorite directors. He did another movie called Thunder Road, which is great. He's got a new movie coming out called the beta test, uh, which I can't wait to see. And like, if it wasn't for my podcast, I would have probably never seen that because I just never really would have stumbled upon it because it wasn't like a well-known property. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't like a big budget you know, movie or anything. I probably wouldn't have stumbled upon it. But now that I'm doing this podcast, like I'm watching stuff, all the time and it's fun I'm, I'm discovering all kinds of new horror movies that i probably wouldn't have seen otherwise and it's amazing just to hear you talk about these the way you are because like you said you you do a podcast not expecting to find gems like that you don't expect to find that you expect to start off with the movies you love and kind of work your way through and you're finding all these new things and it's no different with the pop culture and re-watching movies or, you know, rewatching fights in that sense to bring everything full circle. Because there are sometimes you watch a fight and you go, "That's that was terrible or that was amazing. And then you watch it a second or third time and you go, all right, I, it's not as good this time. There's just something, you know, lost in translation there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I was, when I was coming up, you know, and people would be like getting involved in the sport and they're like, I want to watch MMA, what do I watch? And I would always tell them the same thing. I would say, go watch Frank Shamrock versus Tito Ortiz from UFC, what, 27 or 28. Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, one of my all-time favorite fights. It was just a true display of mixed martial arts. It was unbelievable performance from both guys. You know, Frank Shamrock ended up winning the fight by TKO, I think, in like the fourth round. But the whole fight was amazing. And I was just like, if you want to be a fan of mixed martial arts, go watch that fight. And I've watched that fight dozens of times. Uh, now, you know, both because I was there in attendance and also because I've rewatched it numerous times. But like now when people say, you know, what's your favorite fight of all time? I still list that one, but I always say it's, you know, Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz too. Uh, that was such an amazing five round fight. It was such a battle. Uh, and I'm a little biased because again, I was there, I was, you know, cage side for that one. So obviously I was kind of, you know, living and dying in the moment also, but just like rewatching it on TV, it still holds a lot of emotion. Like, it's such a phenomenal fight uh so yeah like that's the kind of stuff like i still love talking about those things like i still go back and watch you know highlights of knockouts and watch highlights of fights and uh, i was just i just interviewed Corey sandhagen about a week ago and before we did our interview uh i had rewatched the frankie edgar thing and frankie edgar is phenomenal one of the best people in the sport Ooh. always tough to see a legend like that get knocked out but just watching sandhagen with that brutal knee like my god you can watch that thing you know 20 times over and never gets boring so you know that's the thing about our sport man uh, we may get a couple stinkers here or there, but there's always going to be something fun to watch. Yeah. My brain just exploded when you because I just replayed that in him throwing that knee, you know, the precision, like you said, and it's, it's terrible to see a guy like Frankie get knocked out. You know, he's getting older. He still looks as competitive as ever, as ever. but you're seeing some of those things that he go away and the younger guys are starting to catch him on that got caught with 10 years ago well you know i'll disagree with you a little bit there because you know one fight before that you know he went to war with pedro munoz and that was an incredible fight pedro is as good as they're coming pedro's about to fight jose Aldo. that's going to be a great fight uh he got caught i mean at the end of the day he got caught oh, yeah. san higgins a monster he got caught with a flying knee uh i don't care if you're frankie edgar you know, Peter Yan, Algernon Sterling, whoever you are, if you get caught with that knee, you're going out. Um, so yeah. yeah, I don't. I mean, is Frankie? You know, is he older? Is he? Is he? You know, is he in his late thirties? Is he in the you know, the last part of his career? Yeah, but he would tell you the same thing. Uh, but exactly. I, you know, <laughs> but no you know, like I said, uh, yeah, but there's no shame in getting knocked out by that flying knee whatsoever.
Well, speaking of flying knees, we're two years to the day of the Jorge Masvidal one. Uh, so that was everywhere on my feed this morning. So uh, just more and more watching that fight with Askren. Like, it just doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like something like that could still happen. And as I watch it happen, I'm still as shocked now as I was then. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was uh, incredible. And it was a ridiculous knockout. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just watch him as I'll do that. Yeah, you can watch I mean, obviously it's five seconds. So you can watch it over and over and over again. It only wastes about two minutes of your day. But, uh, yeah, it was an incredible thing to watch. And, uh, and, and Horry is another great example of a guy who, you know, for the longest time when he was in, like, strike force, they used to always tell people when they'd say, like, who's the most underrated guy in the sport? And I always mention Masvidal is one of those guys because I'm like, Masvidal's so good, but he just doesn't really get that much respect because he just hadn't had those high-profile pro- high fights or those high-profile wins. And I was just like, but he's so good. He's just, he's just never quite got to that tippy top. Mm-hmm. And uh, to see what Masvidal is doing now is really fun. I mean, obviously, there's no shame whatsoever in losing to, you know, Kamar Usman, as I said. But, uh, you know, no. seeing him kind of make that rise up the ranks doing what he's doing lately has been fun to watch because, again, I think for years, I thought Masvidal was just completely underrated. And now he's finally, you know, getting the appreciation he truly deserves. Absolutely. And I think it's strange to see somebody, like you said, who's been through it all. You know, I go back and you start to think, you know, in the Bellator days where he fought Toby Amata and that reverse triangle that he got caught with to, you know, what he's been able to do. He's had such a career arc, and you're right. It just kind of goes, and it it kind of levels out for a while, and other people pass him, and then he climbs his way back up. But I love what you said about calling him an underrated fighter when he was back at Strikeforce, because he really was, and nobody was talking about him nowhere near as much as they have the last few years. Yeah, and like I said, it's always fun to see those guys get the appreciation they deserve. Uh, you know, and Like I said, I remember you know watching Michael Bisping become champion, you know, when he knocked out Luke Rockle, like, that was one of the coolest things. And, and, you know, and Mike's a guy, you know, he's, he's such a, he was such a, like a polarizing figure for so much his career. And like, he just lived to piss people off. Yeah. And even Michael, <laughs> Michael Bisping would be the first one to tell you he lived to piss people off in those days. But to see that guy win the title, like to do, that's still one of the coolest experiences I've ever seen, you know, any fighter, because I, because we all know what he went through. I mean, the guy, you know, went through, you know, a murderer's row, always, he was always the, Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, that kind of thing. Like, he never got a title shot. Every time he had, like, a number one contender's fight, he came up short. Uh, you're just like, this guy, you just thought, you know, this guy's never going to get there. And then he does it. He does it. And it's just so amazing to watch it. Like, watching him knock out Luke Rockhold uh, and win the title at a time when, at that point, everyone had pretty much written him off was just ridiculous. Yeah. And I remember not really being a fan of his for, for a long time. And uh, I remember watching his fight with Kung Lee. And that was the day I gained every bit of respect for him because that fight against Kung Lee was amazing. And it was just yeah. nonstop, like, I'm not stopping until you're down. You know, I'm not stopping. You know, we're not going to the judges. Like, we're not having one of those fights. And I think it was that day that I reevaluated how I felt about him. And again, I agree with you 100%. Watching him beat Rockhold. After everyone had counted him out, I think he was a 20 to 1, at least 16 to 1, 20 to 1 underdog that night to win the title on 17 days' notice. Yeah, and he like, does it. amazing. And and a, and, a, and a secret of the industry, and I'll let you in on this. And if Bisping hears this, he's going to get really mad at me for telling this. Uh, Don't worry, Michael Bisping's Bisping, not watching. <laughs> Michael Bisping, Michael Bisping uh, is an incredibly nice guy. Like he is actually one of the nicest guys you'll meet in this industry. Uh, just a truly, truly good guy. Um, and it's just funny because he always had this reputation of being such a, you know, such an ass, you know, to people. And he did. I listen. He was incredible. One of the best like trash talkers in the history of the sport. Yeah. Uh, but like outside of that, Michael Bisping is literally one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Like it's, it, if you got to, if you got to talk to Bisping, you know, not in the interview format or whatever, like around, he's just, he literally is like one of the nicest people in the world. It's just so funny because he had this reputation, uh, of being like, you know, this kind of outspoken jerk. And it's so funny because, uh, in reality, Michael Bisping is actually one of the nicest dudes in this industry. And that's so cool to hear, like you said. So, hey, Bisping, if you're listening, he said it, not me. Not <laughs> me. Yeah, nice. One of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, man. I could not be a bigger fan of Michael Bisping, man. As a person, as a fighter, 
he's just a great, great dude and, and hilarious and a, a great example, man. Talk about a guy who went through it all, became champion. Now look what he's doing after his fighting career. I mean, he's obviously doing the analyst thing, doing the bra. He's a phenomenal commentator. I love his commentary. Him and, him and Daniel Cormier are like my two favorite commentators uh, in the sport right now. And I, absolutely nothing against Joe Rogan. Obviously, does an incredible job on his own. I think, you know, Dominic Cruz does a great job. Paul Felder's phenomenal. Uh, but like Michael Bisping and, and, and Daniel Cormier, for me, number one and two in terms of commentary. And those are guys who are both champions, both incredible athletes, but now they transition into their post-fight careers and they're doing amazing things. Yeah, and I'll say I'll agree with the Bisping and the Felder. And it's nothing personal against DC. There was just little things he used to do as com- when he was commentating that would bother the shit out of me. And it would be like, you know, a flyweight fight. And they'd be like, well, you know, if Kane Velasquez was in here, what he would do, and he would start talking. I was like, no, don't talk about Kane. He doesn't belong in this conversation. And that's really, what I really probably <laughs> what I what I love about what I love about DC uh in commentary is the genuine passion that comes across. Because I think sometimes True. that gets missed a little bit because analysts, you know, you're 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 analyzing a fight, so you're not trying to show emotion one way or the other. But like I think about like when Rose Namajunas won the title, everyone knows the you know, Doug Rose, oh, man. Doug Rose, Doug Rose. Like there's just so many moments like that where DC shows such great emotion and it gets you excited. Like I've watched fights where like, you know, where you just you get pumped up, you get excited, you you watch things happen and you're just like, oh my gosh. And like hearing DC's genuine like emotion about things just adds an element to the pay-per-views that I absolutely love because the guy gets so passionate about it. And, uh, and I love it because, it's like I said, that we're all fans. Uh, it just makes you appreciate the sport. Yeah, and I mean, I love the trilogy fight between him and, and Stipe. You know, he came out on the losing end of that, but that really showed, you know, what he was. And I remember when DC was the alternate for the Strike for, you know, the Strike Force Heavyweight Grand Prix, and they put up a graphic on the TV that I still have yet to be able to find again. And it showed... I think it was Josh Barnett and him had a 4% chance of making it to the finals and winning. <laughs> um, and I just thought the irony was so rich to have those two in the finals and to watch him just ragdoll Josh Barnett still blows my mind to this day because I never I, saw that coming. I was witness when that fight got announced, when that fight was booked, I was witness to the uh, pre-fight, this is like, but this is not week fight week. This is like, like months before the fight. Mm-hmm. I was witness to the pre-fight dance-off between Josh Burnett and Daniel Cormier at uh, at a club uh, here in Columbus, Ohio. Actually, I have a photo I posted on on social media a couple times of them dancing. Of them, of them, I didn't get video because I can't. Remember, the lighting was so bad. I could bear, the photo I got is kind of blurry. Uh, but I got I got a photo of the dance off. There was a night where literally Josh Burnett and Daniel Cormier had a dance off uh, in the middle of a club, and it was hilarious. That's amazing. Well, you take that to like I kind of I'm literally gonna go look for that after. This. It's on it's on my social media somewhere. And I'm pretty I know I post on Instagram, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's on my Facebook page too. But yeah, I posted a photo of it, and there was more witnesses. It wasn't just me. It was a lot of journalists there that weekend. But it was so hilarious because they were. They were great guys. They were buddies. Like they were not. There was no rivalry there, but they ended up having a dance off, and it was hilarious. <laughs> and those those are some of the moments, you know. We as journalists sometimes we can't talk about in that moment. You know, there's some things we see where we're like, "Oh, we got to tell everybody this." But you and I both know we've been in those situations where, all right, yeah, we can't tell this story to anybody else until like five, ten years down the road. We can't tell anybody what we were privy to in this moment. Yeah, I mean that was a fun one. That one actually, that one definitely came out right after because it was hilarious. But yeah, that's oh, yeah. still one of the one of the moments I always remember being there for the dance the dance off uh, dance off of the century between Josh Burnett and Daniel Cormier. I mean the fight was the fight was great. It was kind of like DC becoming DC, you know, proving that he was one of the best in the world, and that's great. But uh, yeah. seeing him dance off against Josh Burnett, that's something I'll never quite forget. And I don't know how you could forget it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> really, I don't. So. Well, dude, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I can hear the rain coming down. No trees have made their way through the window, so we are, we are yeah, good. Yeah. Well, be safe, be safe, man. I know it's serious down there. I got a lot of friends. Uh, uh, I, I've come down to Florida because I've gone to American Top Team a couple times, and 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 Sanford MMA down there, and I've talked to friends who live down there. 
Uh, it gets pretty nasty, man. So be safe out there. Uh, you know, batten down the hatches and be safe, man. Don't worry about MMA as much. Make sure you're safe because uh, I know it gets pretty <laughs> wild down there. Well, I'm I'm picking Poirier this weekend anyway. So as long, you know, this is supposed to be gone by tomorrow. So, oh wait, <laughs> I didn't I didn't say that out loud, but uh, I do just want to take a moment thank the sponsors for the show. Uh, hope you don't mind. So I'm gonna bring up this one first. So Tim makes knives on Instagram. He's a real good buddy of mine who's a huge Force and Fire fan. Started making his own knives, uh, so we're eventually going to do it to one of our guests, one of their fans, and they're going to get a custom knife just made by him. So really excited about that. Bertso's Bake Shop and her amazing baked goods. Uh, La Barba Cubana with this beard, you know, from sitting here on the um, and really just, you know, making it, uh, you know, not smell bad because everybody says beards attract bacteria, but, you know, that's, that's all that. Jiu-Jitsu, who has some amazing BJJ gear, uh, including a knee on Mjolnir and Thor on top of Thanos. So I'm sure with this, you'll love that, Luli. So I definitely <laughs> have to let you see that. Um, but thank you again so much. And I'll give the floor to you. So tell everybody again, you know, where they can find some of your stuff, whether it's MMA related, whether it's not, and uh, what's next. Yeah, so obviously I'm over at MMAfighting.com. I'll be over there doing UFC 264 coverage all week long. So just follow along over there. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can. It's just at Damon Martin. Uh, I'm over there on Twitter, obviously tweeting quite a bit. And I'll be tweeting a lot uh, during fight week. I'll be covering the fights on Saturday night for MMA fighting. So be over there for that. And if you are into uh, the pop culture stuff, you know, check out my website, nerdcorpmovement.com. If you are a horror movie fan, I would highly recommend checking out the podcast, uh, Rewind of the Living Dead. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, all the major outlets. We're all over the place. Uh, if you like horror movies, Rewind of the Living Dead. But, yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks, and uh, you know, I'd love to do it anytime. Hey, absolutely, man. Well, thank you so much on behalf of myself, Combat Press, everybody else who supports the show, and guys like you who still have that passion and that drive and, you know, are that person who pushes us all to be better at this. Thanks very much, man. 